Hello, 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 and welcome to the sixth official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Today, we'll be talking about the ongoing crisis in Venezuela, where an extremely dire situation currently presides, with citizens protesting daily against current president, Nicolas Maduro. As it stands, over 60 people have died due to violent clashes between national armed forces and demonstrators, and according to the civil society group Penal Forum, more than 1,000 have reportedly been injured and more than 2,007 arrested. On top of that, resources are scarce for the Venezuelans, with lines for food and medicine being a common sight, and where citizens often rummage through garbage just to get by. So how did things get to where it is today? And what role did President Maduro or his socialist policies play in this scenario? Is there any hope for a better future? Well, today's episode will summarize the events that led up to the current state in Venezuela, and along the way, we'll be discussing the underlying economic and uh, political tensions that have played significant roles. So without further ado, let us begin. So the current wave of citizen protests were triggered by the Supreme Court's decision to strip the powers of the legislating body, the National Assembly, on March 31st of 2017. Reportedly, the court said that the reason was because the National Assembly lawmakers were, quote, in a situation of contempt after allegations of electoral irregularities by several Maduro opposition lawmakers during the 2015 elections. Since the majority of the elected members of the National Assembly were opponents of Maduro, the court's actions were seen as highly controversial. You know, in other words, akin to stripping away the strongest check and balance of Maduro's power in Venezuela. Critics thus responded by pointing out how the country is now closer to a one-man rule or a dictatorship with the court's decision. Likewise, many other countries such as the United States, Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina have openly warned that the court's actions was a threat to Venezuelan democracy. However, the court's decisions and the resulting protests are merely the symptom of a deeper problem that that plagues Venezuelans. For one, the economy is in the midst of a deep, deep recession, having been hit especially hard by the volatile oil prices in recent years. Because of the bulk of the revenue that Venezuela uses to subsidize its generous social policies such as food, medicine, and housing is through selling oil or exporting oil, the citizens are especially hurt. And with the state unable to afford the same level of supplies as before, scarcity becomes commonplace and inflation is rampant. With the Finance and Economic Development Commission of the National Assembly predicting 679.73% inflation in January of this year, although the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, makes an even higher estimation of 720.5% for this year and 2068.5% in 2018. So, I just... I just rattled off some really, really big inflation numbers. And to give you some perspective on this, to, to, to make it somewhat relatable to you, you know, you can imagine if, uh, if you had 720% inflation for this year, right? So if, you, if, if previously you could purchase a plate of your favorite chicken rice for 350 
if you had 720% inflation in one year, in the next year, that same plate of chicken rice will be will cost around $27. That is the unbelievable, unbelievable economic reality that the Venezuelans face today. So what is useful here, though, as an economic lesson, is to examine the role uh, that, that socialism or socialist policies played in the crisis. After all, it can be somewhat difficult to make the causal connection, seeing as how on its face, socialist policies are based on good intentions. I mean, after all, to give it due credit, Maduro's predecessor, the infamous Hugo Chavez, was relatively successful on delivering his promises of empowering the poor. During his presidency, Chavez's social programs helped lower poverty rates while also improving housing facilities for the poor and general literacy rates in Venezuela. But to grant it due credit for some results and to deny accountability for other results is, to put it lightly, intellectually dishonest. For instance, you may try to defend you know, all these socialist policies or big government or socialism in Venezuela today by saying that the current problems are more due to the you know faulty leadership or leadership of Nicolas Maduro rather than the system of socialism or the socialist policies themselves. But what you fail to recognize is how the structure of socialism contributes to the so-called inadequate leadership. So to elaborate on that previous point, I think it is a good time here to bring up one of my biggest pet peeves or one of the biggest issues that I have with uh, you know having all these big, big social policies or big government policies or socialism in general, which is that assigning the responsibility of individual outcome to government involves a necessary trade-off of individual liberties. Now let this sink in for a bit because this point is often underrepresented and no one really talks about or, or tries to elaborate this point. So let's say, for example, that because, poor, that because some people are unhappy with some social issue, such as low wages or high wealth inequality or poor education, that they protest and say, you know, the government should do something about this. After all, you know, this I would say is quite a natural step to take. I mean, if you think that the state or government is responsible for setting the rules of the game, you might think that it was their fault that some of these people were, were marginalized or, or were poor in the first place or that they got hurt because, because of the rules, the game. But, you know, if you, make this, if you make this claim and you urge government to step in and to take over this responsibility of individual outcome, what does this involve? So if you say that the state should guarantee education so that even the poorest kids are not left out. If you say that the state should take over all the private schools and run all, run all the schools, they should nationalize education completely, then every child gives up their freedom to choose their education. And while on the surface you might say this is a benefit because at least every kid will get some form of public schooling, this omits the education that children might receive from other means such as private education, such as homeschooling, or you know, even through the rigors of life itself. You can think of all the famous entrepreneurs who didn't complete university or they dropped out of high school and still went on to become successful, right? Maybe, so if, if, rather, if they were forced to complete their education all the way through maybe high school or even through their higher education, you know, these kind of people may not have had the chance to go out 
and experience the world and become the entrepreneur they are, that they are today. All right, so now I, I will admit that the example of education, it is quite contrived. And, you know, some of, some of you may be sitting there thinking, you know, this is not really the best example. But however, look at, look at how this situation has played out in Venezuela, right? So in exchange for granting housing to many people, the state has violated individual property rights by nationalizing and expropriating land from many private businesses, thereby increasing political risk and reducing the incentives for individuals to open a business or for foreigners to invest. In another example, by ensuring that citizens never go hungry, the state establishes price controls such that food is affordable to even the poorest citizens. In exchange, the prices were set so low that they were below the cost of production, meaning that the farmers or producers or you know people who, op- who operated a restaurant or who operated like a meatpacking factory, these people who are food producers, they, they, they were de- de-incentivized uh, from producing because they're, they're, the revenues that they were generating were not even enough to cover what they were doing. So in the end, many of them did the rational thing and they just quit, right? Because they were just losing, they were losing money just by doing their work and they were not getting enough to compensate uh, for, for their production. And you know, while you might, you might be over there thinking, okay, so if the locals aren't, aren't, aren't going to be willing to produce, well, you can still solve this problem by relying more on imported food, right? Well, lower state revenues due to lower oil prices have meant that the state can't really afford as much food as before. So how does the government ensure that everyone is able to eat when they cannot afford as much as before and when they have fewer producers who are actually supplying food? As uh, Javier Corrales uh, article in the World Post notes, the Maduro government that succeeded Chavez introduced a food rationing system consisting of consumption quotas that quote, give permission, give people permission to buy certain quantities of certain products on certain days of the week, but no more. So this has led to long, long lines for food where people spend an average of eight hours a week standing in line. So, okay, you might think, okay, so as a rebuttal, you might say, wait a minute, you know, so, so, so what if people have to wait in line for food, right? At least they're getting food. You know, in, in, in a capitalist economy, in a free market economy, you know, there's bound to be tons of homeless people or impoverished people or poor people who are struggling to get by, who can't even afford, who, you know, scraping by just to get, just to put food on their plate for their next meal, right? So what's so bad about that? Well, given that, and, and I'll admit that is horrible, but given that, at least the majority of the people in the free market society, at least they get to purchase whatever they want at, at whatever time they want, right? They get this freedom, is this liberty that they enjoy. So at some point, you have to admit that the cost to individuals of having to wait in line for many hours a week has greater costs than benefits. You know, it produces uh, sort of negative, uh, ne- negative consequences uh, in, in, in the medium term or in the long run. So as Corrales himself points out, quote, Teachers are taking time off from, from school to stand in line. Families bring children with them to stand in line since they are unsure if schools are providing adult supervision. Empty shelves are producing empty classrooms. And 
you know what? This is not even considering the quality of food or the controlled quantity that the citizens are able to have. All right. So moving on to build on this the on this idea that introduced of this trade-off of individual liberties, more government responsibility for social outcomes necessarily means a bigger government with greater state control and resultingly greater state power. On the political front, the more power that the Venezuelan government gained, the more it began to resemble you know, somewhat authoritarian rule. Now, the Supreme Court's Supreme Court's undermining of the powers of the National Assembly is a great example of this. As I mentioned earlier, the National Assembly is the legislating or rulemaking body of Venezuela and being majority seated by opponents of current President Maduro serves as a strong check against his powers. The court, therefore, by reducing the power of the National Assembly, allows Maduro to exert more control and influence. Now, to be fair, the Supreme Court recently reversed their decision, or they eventually reversed their decision, due to the retaliation of the public, even though the street protest has continued on to this day. However, Maduro recently announced a plan to create a new constituent assembly that would have the ability to rewrite the constitution. While this new constituent assembly will supposedly involve a 540-member body made up of elected representatives from different parts of society, including those from municipal levels, you know, those from student groups, uh, those from farming groups, uh, those from trade or worker unions or, or different groups such as those, it has, met, it has still been met with fierce criticism from Maduro's opponents who claim that this assembly not only masks itself as another attempt at stripping Maduro's political rivals of any power, but that it is also a distraction from opposition demands to have earlier elections. To validate these criticisms, you only have to look at the prior Chavez regime for parallels. For instance, according to a timeline provided by The Telegraph, Hugo Chavez proposed a similar constituent assembly soon after he was elected as president in December of 1998. Instead of acting as a check on his presidential power, however, the Constituent Assembly, get this, consisted of allies of Chavez winning 122 out of 128 seats, which thereby allowed Chavez to draft legislation to his liking. So under this system, Chavez has been able to uh, consolidate his power through legislative changes such as lengthening the presidential term from five years to six in December of 1999, and by eliminating term limits in February of 2009, which, you know, te- technically, if Chavez didn't die, it didn't pass away of terminal cancer, uh, sorry, of, of cancer in what it, I think it was 2013, he would still be running on and on and on till this day, right? So this this elimination of the term limits it allowed it allows Chavez or any president for that matter, to run for a re-election indefinitely. So at this point, you know, you, you, you might be sitting there, you might be tempted to point out that technically, since Venezuela is a demo- democracy, that citizens could just vote out Chavez or Maduro if they were doing a poor job or, you know, if they were really dissatisfied with how they have handled the country. Historically, however, it has not been as simple as just an election. 
So even if we do not consider, you know, Maduro and his recent attempts to undermine the his political uh, opposition, the book A Decade Under Chavez, published by the Human Rights Watch, have revealed many instances of political discrimination by the Chavez regime that served to maintain his power. For example, the Chavez regime witnessed and tolerated cases of political discrimination that denied individuals work at state agencies or access to social programs based on their political opinions, while also actively discriminating against institutions such as media outlets, labor unions, or civil society in response to criticism or political activism. The freedom of expression, then, a staple of any democracy and a key civil liberty that allows citizens to voice dissent or unhappiness with state policy, was also heavily undermined under the Chavez regime, whereby, whereby the scope of insult laws were expanded to punish disrespectful expression towards government, and where, the pun- and, where the, and where the penalties of incitement provisions were toughened to allow for the arbitrary suspension of TV and radio channels. These actions and policies served to create a political climate of fear which punished any criticism towards the government, thereby making it difficult for opposition parties to garner support for elections or for individuals to even express a different political opinion. Now, if you thought that the political situation under the Chavez or Maduro regime was bad, the economy, the, the economic situation was, to be frank, much worse. For one, as I've, as I've mentioned earlier, the socialist government sought to meet the promises of alleviating, alleviating uh, poverty or increasing housing by taking control or nationalizing many businesses, thereby encroaching and violating individuals' private property rights. This is seen in many of the country's major industries, such as oil, agriculture, finance, telecommunications, and transport. For instance, according to a report by, by Reuters, the Chavez government took over a majority stake in four, four oil projects in 2007 worth an estimated 30 billion US dollars. Just took him away without any compensation at all. Just like that. And also in 2009, a rice meal operated by the local unit of the U.S. food giant Cargill Inc. was nationalized, taken away again without any compensation. So this recurring pattern of nationalizing private companies is troubling as it creates a climate of uncertainty for any business. This thereby deters foreign companies from coming to Venezuela where they can provide investment, where they can provide jobs and provide training for locals, you know, help them improve, give them you know, opportunities. Even worse, it forces some foreign companies to leave, which removes jobs and local production. In fact, as recently as April of this year, Venezuela seized control of, G- of General Motors' local, uh, local, local plant, thereby, for- thereby forcing them to halt operations and leave the country. So picture yourself in the shoes of, of one of these companies, right, who've come into Venezuela who've invested millions and millions of dollars and who've invested years and years of their time working with the locals here, you know, making making cars and stuff like that, making cars or making electronics or what have you. Imagine having invested all that time and money in a country only to have it take away without any, without any warning, without any compensation, 
And in fact, without any recourse for you know to, to get anything back, because because you know what what, what kind of what kind of means are there uh, to seek uh, to seek legal action against against the, the national government? There are you know there are very few intra national uh, legal bodies that are able to to sort of adjudicate these sort of matters. So in this sense, if you are a company and you just you just have your business or your 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 years worth of investment taken away chances are not many of you 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 wouldn't want to go and invest there and people seeing that that situation that's going on wouldn't want to go in and invest there so and if you think that nationalizing these companies would be justified so long as the state can run these industries effectively history again says otherwise the most poignant example perhaps, is with the oil industry, which manages the largest oil reserves in the world. So remember how I said that workers could get fired for bearing, you know, opposing political opinions? Well, back in 2003, Chavez fired more than 23,000 workers, or almost half the entire workforce of the state-run oil company Petróleos de Venezuela, or PDVSA for short. This was in response to the workers taking part in a strike that started in December 2002 that called for a referendum on the status of Chavez's presidency. The effects of the strike on on Venezuela's oil production was significant in itself, as Ernesto Tovar notes in an article for El Universal how oil production during the strike, quote, sank from nearly 3 million barrels per day to a mere 25,000 barrels. However, it was the loss of thousands and thousands of experienced managers, technicians, and engineers that were severely detrimental to the industry for years to come. You know, effectively, what this, uh, what, 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 what the state did was they, was they, was it sort of forced a brain drain, you know, of all these expertise out of Venezuela. And in the long run, you know, it had all these negative consequences. So Tovar points out in the same article then that even though the PDVSA staff, even though their their numbers have increased to over 100,000 through 2012, production actually fell from 3.3 million barrels per day in 2001 to 2.99 million barrels per day in 2011. And what's even worse is that oil exports have dropped from 2007, 2.7 million barrels per day in 2001 to 2.4 million barrels per day in 2011. The falling oil production levels would serve as a foreshadowing of future economic malaise, as the IMF reports that the Venezuelan economy actually contracted 3.8% in 2014, 6.2% in 2015, and 10% in 2016. However, one of the most significant root problems of the economic mismanagement is the system of capital controls or the foreign exchange system that the government imposes. So in Venezuela, as a response to the 2003 oil industry strikes that severely hampered production levels, the Chavez regime implemented currency controls to prevent capital flight, or in other words, a large-scale exodus of currency from the country. So to explain this, you can imagine that when, you know, whenever an, econ- an, an economically destabilizing event 
such as the 2003 oil strikes, whenever such a thing happens in the economy, you know, the expected reaction in the foreign exchange markets is for the national currency, or in Venezuela's case, the bolivars, to depreciate. So the reaction from, from individuals then, from, from local Venezuelans who, who anticipate this depreciation, therefore, is to try and sell or exchange as many bolivars as they can before they become less and less valuable. So as a result of this, what happens in the end is this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and the, the, the bolivars actually depreciate sharply. So why would the government want to impose uh, capital controls to, to, to prevent this sort of uh, depreciation from, from happening? Is because, is because if, if, the, if their national currency depreciates uh, sharply, that means that imported goods that they pay for with foreign currency they will be they will be relatively more expensive than before, and of course, if the government relies heavily upon imported goods, uh, imported goods for their massive social programs, that makes it, that that makes it more difficult or more expensive, you know, to to fund their social programs effectively. So the role of the currency controls, therefore, was to make the make it difficult for individuals to freely exchange their bolivars. For, for you know reliable currencies such as the US, United States dollars or USD, you know they and they did this through the combination of multiple official exchange rates and hefty hefty amounts of bureaucracy or red tape. So theoretically, though, currency controls can be helpful to stabilize the value of a currency in response to some economic event in the short run. However, in Venezuela's case, because the currency controls continued on as a feature in the Chavez and Maduro presidencies, they had lasting negative consequences for the economy. So one of the most obvious is that these currency control measures make it difficult for producers who have foreign transactions. So this is due to the fact that Venezuela has two official legal rates, the first being the DPRO, or DIPRO, which has a fixed value of 10 bolivars per USD, and the DCOM, the second rate, or DICOM, which has, get this, a rate of 709 bolivars per USD. So already a huge discrepancy between these two rates. So why the discrepancy? Well, the former, the DPRO, is strictly used for key resources such as food and medicine, while the latter is used for other priority imports. So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the, the government relies a lot on imports to fund uh, its social programs, right? Bring in food or bring in medicine from overseas because a, a lot of the people are not producing, you know, because you can't get this thing, you can't get these things locally. So, as a, so in response to, you know, the, the bolivars dropping or depreciating like crazy and making it more difficult to them, for, for the government to purchase more uh, imports, they just fix the price. And they just say, heck, we're going to use this to fix it, and we're going we're to use this to pay for uh, all these imports. So however, because the state tightly administers the exchange of currency, it becomes, as noted by David Howden in an article for the Mises Institute, a, quote, near impossibility to actually get assigned to these rates due to the complex bureaucratic process one must navigate to apply for them. So these controls are therefore a disincentive for private business owners in the long run because the state 
say imposes a lot of frictions and a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy for private business owners, you know, such that foreign transactions become incredibly difficult. So as 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 you go on, many of these private businesses become, you know, they, they find it more and more difficult to to get the to, to get the United States dollars or to get the euros or to get the foreign currency they need to purchase key imports or key key raw materials from abroad or to purchase other kinds of imports. And as a result, they cut down their production or they shut down their business and the economy suffers. So another effect of the currency controls and I think perhaps one of the most detrimental is that it has created you know massive, massive incentives for corruption. So in order to in order to fully explain this point, I think it is worth pointing out so a little bit of backstory, right? A little bit of background that despite the strict regulations placed upon the foreign exchange or the, the capital controls that I mentioned uh, in the previous point, there exists a bustling black market where the relatively free exchange of currency takes place. So in fact, because there are no controls placed on these black markets, the rate used is often more representative of the true value of the bolivars as opposed to the official rates provided by the government. So you might wonder then, if citizens have difficulty getting US, you know, United States dollars from the government, then how do, how do these traders in a black market get them for exchange? Well, ironically, <laughs> the United States dollars that they get for exchange is actually provided indirectly by the government as well except that it is through state or military officials who are often paid in dollars at one of the official rates and who can obtain vastly greater amounts of bolivars in the black market. So in fact, you know, today you can, you, you, you can find the going uh, foreign exchange rate in the black market at www.dollartoday.com, as dollar spelled with one L, and see that as of uh, June 6 of 2017, one United States dollar can be exchanged for a massive 6,308.62 bolivars. So you remember, remember how I mentioned earlier that the two official rates, the DPRO, where you can exchange it, you can exchange one United States dollar for just 10 bolivars. And then the second official rate, DCOM, even though it was already a huge discrepancy, where, where you exchange one United States dollar for 709 bolivars, these two official rates are still far, far, far away from the true value of the bolivars. You know, if if they were if they were to be exchanged in a uh, free foreign exchange market, so the real rate is about six thousand three hundred eight point six two. So how has this created a, a a scenario or created the incentives for corruption? Right. Well, put yourself in the shoes of the state official then. So you know. Maybe you get paid around hypothetically three thousand bolivars a month, right? But because you have connections with uh, people in the government, because you know different regulators, you know you're 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 easily able to bypass all this red tape, all this bureaucracy, and you're easily able to convert bolivars at the at the depot rate of ten bolivars per USD, and you can get three hundred USD in return. Now you can go back to the black market and exchange that three hundred USD. For 1.8 million bolivars, but that—that that is how. 
you know, how do you guard against this kind of corruption? You know, when, when they, they, and they've been doing this for years, right? And the incentive for this, the amount of arbitrage, the amount of free profit that you can generate from doing this, doing this transaction, you know, is, is insane. And it's precisely because there, there are no punishments at all uh, for state officials who've been doing this. They're the ones actually funding and, and making these uh, black markets liquid by providing the United States dollars for trade. Is that, is that crazy, right? So, 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 okay, if, and, and if you think that the situation with the, the currency and the capital controls, if you think that, that is bad and you think all that corruption is bad for all the state officials and stuff, so in reality, this, the, the scary thing about corruption is that it's just, is that the currency, the, all this, uh, currency corruption is just merely the tip of the iceberg in compared to other types of corruption, such as embezzlement or the amount of uh, USD that is pilfered from uh, government revenue. So Gustavo Cornell he provides a nice summary of some of the most egregious examples of, of uh, government corruption in an article for the Cato Institute. So some of the highlights include disbursements of up to 70 billion United States dollars to foreign countries to buy political loyalties from countries such as Cuba, Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, and many others, right? So that's one example. Another example, Chavez, Hugo Chavez, purchasing a $65 million USD presidential airplane without seeking budgetary provisions for his purchase, and despite numerous public speeches saying he will get rid of all government aircraft. That's another example. Third example, third example here, is uh, one scenario whereby 1.3 million US dollars was pilfered from the accounts of a project run by the military and the Cuban advisors known as the state of Barinas sugar mill, which included charges of squandering 1.5 million dollars out of the 2.6 million million dollars appropriated for the project. Okay, third example. Okay, and the last one, and perhaps my most favorite case here of government corruption in Venezuela is this case known as the Derwick Associates case. So this case is described by Thor Halvorsen uh, in his opinion piece for the New York Post. So it involves a group of 20-something American-educated Venezuelans. You know, these guys who, who, never, who have never won a government contract before, who have never had experience in in building power plants or construction or anything of the like. And yet somehow in the space of 14 months, they were able to obtain 12 government contracts to build electronic, uh, electronic power plants all over Venezuela. Now to be sure, they didn't do much of the building or the planning or any of the constructing for that matter. And rather, they just hired an American company to, to do all the work and and the and, and the work that they did, the the, the plans that they built, that they built weren't even functioning properly. And you know what's the worst part? They overbuilt the government by more than one billion United States dollars. So how did they, you know, you know, how did they manage to win all these contracts? Well, by bribing state officials, right? So the the point here that that this example is supposed to show that bidding doesn't really bidding for government contracts doesn't really exists in Venezuela, right? You, if you want to secure a government contract, you don't have to show that we're able to do the most work at the, at the least price. 
all you have to do is just pay off the government official who's in charge of, of some project to build power plants. This case is, is by far my favorite because it manages to show three, three things, right? The first being that big government breeds corruption because of the incentives of, of what I just told you, right? Because there were no checks in place, there were no punishments in place for all these corrupt officials because, all, because, because the regime itself encouraged or didn't do anything about all these corruptions. So, and the second point, even if you, even if you don't agree with the first point, even if you say, you know, no, no, they aren't corrupt at all, that this case shows that these government officials are terrible at deal-making. I mean, come on, they, 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 they were overcharged by a billion dollars, and the people that they, that they contracted to work with didn't even do anything uh, in the project in the first place. All right, all right so that's the second point. And the third point here is that a, a supposedly socialist government who aims to, sp- to spread the country's resources amongst its people actually just filters most of it to the country leaders while the majority of the people get the bare minimum, get the bare minimum, get the leftovers, right? Once, once Chavez, you know, you know, enjoys his 65 million, U- U- US, million US dollar plane, the rest of the people can enjoy the rest of people get the remaining scraps for food and medicine and housing, whatever. So to, to conclude then, if you take away anything at all from this episode, please, please, please let it be the relationship that the more you assign government the responsibility of individual outcomes such as health or food or education, the more of your liberties you are giving away as an individual. So effectively, any scenario involving the state and the individual is a win-lose situation because the only way that the government can guarantee a certain behavior from, from its citizens is through force and coercion. So in Singapore, you can look at this very clearly, right? So, so the government has said, because we are a small country and because we need you know, to have a national defense, uh, we need to have people, we, we need to have boys who are age 18, all the citizens and and your second generation PR, uh, PR to, to enlist in the national service uh, for two years, right? Or one year and 10 months at the minimum. So in exchange for this, the individuals, they have to give up their civil liberty, liberties. They have to give up, you know, this one year and 10 months of their life away. And they, and they don't, don't get any say because if you try and run away, the government will try and hunt you down. Or if you, or if you flee the country, they'll blacklist you so that you can, never come back so this is what i mean by a win-lose situation and that they and, and the way that they guarantee behavior or they make sure that you that you you take part in national service is through force and coercion or by imposing all these punishments so in the future whenever you see some social issue that you find appalling think about how you as an individual think first about how you as an individual can help to solve the problem you know, be it through spreading awareness, encouraging dialogue, or even making donations. In fact, you know, the free market can be a great source to alleviate the social problems as well. You know, we, you know recently we've been seeing a huge surge in uh, social entrepreneurship, which helps, which, which, not, which not only uh, aims, aims to be profit-making, but also, but also aims to help social causes as well. So lastly, and I want to end on this point, Individual civil liberties are the defining feature of a democracy. So as such, it is only when they are given up, 
when the control and the power of the state grows too big, that the problems of political discrimination, corruption, and economic management start to occur. At this stage, as in the case with modern-day Venezuela, the very people whom the government sought to help are the ones who are hurt the most, and the notion of democracy becomes a mere facade. Alright, so with that brings the end to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much, and I hope you have learned as much as I have reading up and researching on this fascinating topic. If you liked the episode, please consider sharing it on social media or by subscribing and leaving a rating on iTunes and Stitcher. As usual, you can be notified of the of the latest episodes through Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud, or follow up on the la- on, on additional material through the website at www.economicalrisepodcast.com. This has been your host, Danny, and I hope you tune in next week where we can serve you the grains of capitalism.